0: choke points let's go well here it comes A new way to merge from I-90 onto I-5. The ramp meters will be going active in less than two weeks. How long have we waited for this, Chris?
1: Well, Many, 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 many years uh, is when the construction started and the planning began on this to improve the flow of traffic on uh, northbound I-5 and through the collector-distributor lanes and from I-90. Tuesday, November 14th, that's the day the red lights turn on in the collector-distributor lanes that manage the northbound I-5 Seattle exits and that connection from i-90 three ramp meters will manage the flow of cars onto northbound i-5 starting with that morning commute
2: the plan to use them is they're going to be turn on as that morning commute starts to build they're going to stay on through the day Through the evening commute, and as that starts to dissipate, they're going to turn off.
1: The Washington Department of Transportation's Amy Moreno says traffic engineers decided it was best to keep them on all day.
2: Looking at the data, they decided that was the best, best idea, and really sometimes I think many of us will find there is traffic sometimes in the middle of the day on I-5, unfortunately. So looking at all the data, the, the engineers decide the best modeling showed it was to keep it on throughout the day on I-5.
1: Engineers and other WSDOT staff will be able to tweak the signal timing in real time to change those meters as needed.
2: Those ramp meters are being be monitored by staff in our Transportation Management Center. And so they'll be watching them, looking at how they work, looking at how the traffic is responding them and they'll be able to respond accordingly.
1: These meters are the final piece of this year's long project to improve the flow of traffic in this daily choke point. WashDOT extended the lane at Seneca to add a little bit of capacity. New variable speed and message signs are going up. Moreno says there is just one goal here.
2: We are trying to make traffic move through this area in a better way, in a smarter way. We're working within our own footprint right there and trying to manage that traffic better. And so we want people to understand that these ramp meters are better traffic management.
1: But let's be real. Ramp meters do not have a good rep. (laughs) I could feel you gripping the steering wheel right now and saying that this is a terrible idea. But the data, Marina says, shows that metering
2: actually works. Research in both Washington state and nationally has shown that ramp meters create gaps between drivers. Those gaps make it easier for cars to merge and the cars keep moving faster overall. It's sometimes hard for people to see because they see a red light. What they don't realize is they might get where they're going quicker because of the ramp meter.
1: So we'll see how this all bears out. But the meters at Mercer have actually had a positive impact on congestion. So there is some data to uh, back that up. Moreno expects the first few days to be rough, but drivers will adjust.
2: It will be a change for drivers. And we understand that change is difficult. And we just want people to realize that, in the long run, this is safer for everybody on the road, and it is better traffic management. It helps control the flow of traffic.
1: There will also be a new ramp meter from Cherry Street to northbound I-5 to help complete this project. It goes active the same day, so you have less than two weeks to prepare mentally for red lights to show up in your drive. Also, oh, a meter on the Cherry ramp too. Yeah, right there. So, so you can't
0: do the uh, James Street uh, work cut around through. Yeah. no,
1: no, because you'll have you'll have to get off there. You'll have the signal at James, and then you will actually have a ramp meter at Cherry as well. So I think that might also back things up a little bit on Cherry coming up the hill and then under the freeway as people then make that left uh, as they adjust to that. But, yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see to see how this works. Uh, it's going to be a, that's a big change for drivers because a lot of people consider that freeway to freeway. And I'm like, no, it's it's a ramp and they can meter any ramp they want.
0: Well, but right. But uh, I think it'll be easier than trying to zipper with people who don't want to let you zipper.
1: Yeah, I nearly uh, got into a crash uh, coming home Saturday or Sunday uh, from a a Jeep that refused to let me. I I was in front of him and merging in. He jammed up all the way in front of me and almost took out my quarter panel and then uh, stared me down like I was in the wrong. Uh, This will, I think, help alleviate all that late merging, sudden lane changing to try to get one or two person ahead, because at the end of the day, you realize, I'm not going anywhere. There's a red light right there. I would and- love to
3: speak to a psychologist about the psychology behind that, the, the the what, uh, three, five, seven feet of space that you'd be giving up by letting somebody yeah. in, and what that means if you let that person, what what is it that you're protecting? I want to uh, get to like the nut. Yeah, of the it, psychology it was weird. I mean, I
1: had it. I had it, he, this was a guy who had weaved out and tried to go around traffic. Then next thing he realized the lane I was in was going faster, uh, but his lane was the lane that was ending, and he still just jammed up and almost took off my front end.
3: Because I see it all the time. Yeah, I don't get it's it's it either. One-off. It's not a one off. It's like a very territorial thing.
1: Selfish. Immature. I don't know. I don't, know. I, don't, I
3: don't want to ascribe negative attributes oh, to I it. Do. I just want to understand the <laughs> psychology of going is it a territory thing? Is it a mm. what?
0: Well well I thought your explanation was that it's probably a pregnant woman who's trying to get to a hospital. No, as that's how as I get over it. That's oh, how I,
3: I get over this you know, was not that. letting somebody in because I've <laughs> been there, right? When my dad was in the hospital, I had to leave the show early. This was like four years ago. Yeah. And so I go, Okay, that next person coming up on me who needs to get past me, I need to move it, right? I just go, They have a loved one in the hospital, I'm gonna let them by. I'm gonna yeah. get over. Because I don't I don't own this lane.
0: Yeah. Mm. I guess it's just uh, humans are territorial just like your pets. Possibly. Maybe. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) 638. Controversy continues in Burien, where the city's new camping ban went into effect last night. Kyra News Radio's Sam Campbell spent the day in Burien talking with city officials and homeless advocates about the new tent village that has popped up on private property.
4: Behind Oasis Home Church in Burien covered chain-link fences and porta-potties in a parking lot. It's the site of what organizers call a temporary solution to the city's homelessness crisis. By Monday, the nonprofit running the site plans to welcome in at least 30 people with their tents. The person leading the charge? Sitting city council member, Sydney Moore.
3: We're going to have a security desk right at the front entrance of the gate here. Uh, We'll have a storage area for supplies, donations, things like that, a food prep area, and a dining area.
4: The goal is to give homeless people a place to stay so they can escape a misdemeanor. The city's new ordinance says if they're found camping on public property from 10 at night to 6 in the morning, they could face charges, but only if shelter space is available. That camping ban is now in effect, the result of months of heated debate, ending with a split 4-3 to vote in the city council. Moore was one of those no votes. Now she's rushing to get people off the street and into a parking lot. But she says this fenced-in tent village will have rules.
3: We're going to have people monitoring uh, comings and goings, security 24-7, so there will always be staff on site available to oversee things.
4: Some of those rules, no alcohol or drugs, no disruptive behavior and nothing illegal, both in the village and the surrounding neighborhood, where two blocks away, students walk in Highline High School. In a press release sent Tuesday, Moore claims the site is a, quote, sanctioned encampment, end quote, and that it. Received formal approval. But Deputy Mayor Kevin Schilling visited the site the next morning. He tells reporters, no, this was not given a permit. They want to be able to set up something that's unpermitted and get people here and then force the city to say you can't do that and then have the
1: city look bad for saying that we're taking away an opportunity for people to be in an encampment.
4: When asked about approval, Moore claims her nonprofit does not need a permit because the site is on private property. Meanwhile, neighbors remain as divided as their city council members. Some women living across the street told me they don't want homeless people in their neighborhood. They claim it would increase crime and that they weren't given enough notice. Other neighbors
2: like Ariane Charles
4: say they don't care if the village has a permit or not.
2: Orally, I don't see the problem of it. So I feel like if you're going to make a ban, at least provide resources for them to go. You can't just make a ban for something and then leave them out. While nights
4: roll by and tent spikes stay planted to the ground, some question how police can actually enforce the ban. City officials admit there's often no space or little space at nearby shelters, and questions remain over how police would know the latest vacancies. That's why Moore says she's setting up Sunnydale Village. It'll last for 90 days while she says she and other community members look for a more permanent place to stay.
3: We're not going to be able to solve homelessness in Burien. We're not going to be able to to house everyone, and this is not any way a long-term solution. We're encouraging the community to continue advocating for real solutions.
4: It's set to open on Monday, with or without a permit. So, what will the city do? I asked the question to Deputy Mayor Schilling. The answer is unclear. What's going to happen on November 6th if they don't go through these proper channels, like you said? <laughs> I have no clue. Um, I'm, I'm really
1: hoping that they go through the proper legal channels and actually get a permit and actually do the correct form of community outreach. You know what? You can see it's already set up, like they're already ready to go. So it doesn't really seem like they're waiting till November 6th anyway.
4: Sam Campbell, Cairo News
0: Radio. Right now, we're going to look at some of the legal cases against former President Donald Trump. One of the cases getting the most attention right now is the civil fraud trial in New York involving the alleged doctoring of real estate values by the Trump Organization. Donald Trump Jr. became the first member of the Trump family to testify under oath in the trial yesterday. Two of Trump's other children, Eric and Ivanka, will follow in his footsteps in the coming days. So I call up CBS's legal analyst, Thane Rosenbaum, to ask him, so why are the Trump children required to testify?
5: Eric and Donald Jr., are defendants in the case. So they're essentially being uh, accused of having committed the same civil fraud as their father. Ivanka Trump, who is testifying, I think, on Monday, is still trying to avoid testifying. She's appealing a ruling that she was required to answer the subpoena, but she was not indicted under the same civil fraud case. So that's why they're there, uh, both because their allegations apply to them, the sons, uh, and also because of their intimate knowledge of their father's uh, role at the company.
0: Now, are they themselves accused of being behind some of the uh, attempts to inflate the value of his real estate?
5: It was initially including even Ivanka. But the idea is that the Trump family, all of whom are executives in the Trump organization, had uh, knowingly, artificially uh, inflated the value of their real estate portfolios, including the hotels, the golf courses, the apartment houses, uh, in order to obtain favorable bank loans on much cheaper terms. And the same thing with insurance policies. Their defense, and Donald Jr. uttered it yesterday, we're executives, we are not accountants. We pay people for that job, uh, and they are the ones that prepare the documents. That's one defense, and that's certainly one that Donald Jr. was using yesterday. But the larger defense, which has been sort of repeated before, and Donald Trump himself is going to, when he takes a stand and he's expected to do so, he's going to push this argument that his son also uttered, which is that we're, our last names are Trump. We are are in the real estate business, and anyone who's in the real estate business knows that you, when you're trying to sell your property or you're trying to show your property, you're always inflating it. In fact, they're arguing that the value of his properties were actually more valuable than they even said they were. So, you know, the saying, "Look, this is what people do. If you put a new garage in your uh, house, you're you know, charge a lot." And it may be way more than simply because you put a new garage on. And so this idea of real estate values, they're fully, wholly subjective. The evaluations were not made necessarily by us. We're not in the business of, you know, talking so directly to the the banks. We have other people who do that. And the banks were represented by lawyers. And guess what? They had their own CPAs. And they're also in the business of making evaluations, uh, evaluations of property. They didn't have a problem with my numbers. And guess what? I paid the loans back and they made money off of me. Mm -hmm. So how are how are the people of New York? Remember, this is brought by the New York attorney general. So this is a civil fraud case. It's not a criminal case. So, you know, this is true in Seattle. Uh, the Attorney General of Seattle, his or her job, is consumer protection. That's really what they do. That's So the question is, in what way did I harm the consumer by getting bank loans at favorable terms? It,
0: it sounds like they're saying if we're guilty of real estate asset inflation, then so is everybody else in the commercial real estate business.
5: Absolutely. it's exactly what they're saying. And you know what they're also saying? especially in New York, <laughs> you know, people in, you know, Washington state might be very different, but in this city, you know, no matter what you're selling, condos, co-ops, you know, there's so much uh, real estate speculation, right. You know, the whole point is that it's hard to tell what the asset's worth. And so he's saying you fundamentally don't understand what happens in the real estate business. If you're looking at these numbers and that's what your case is about, then Dave is right that it would apply to everyone. And it would be, again, I paid the loans back. The banks made money. The banks had their own people look at the valuations. I had no problem with it. Why am I here? CBS legal analyst Thane Rosenbaum.
3: Wait, can I be your grandchild and get a Costco gold bar? Too late. Oh. Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Robert W. Baird. After one of the worst weeks in Lewiston, Maine's recent history, the community has turned to kindness the city of Lewiston hosted an Act of Kindness and Gratitude Day this week. David Graham got a head start spreading kindness and love on Main Street in Lewiston. He's been there six days now with his own message of love and hope in the wake of this senseless, violent attack. Graham telling CBS affiliate WGME-TV.
6: This is a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing. This started out to be the
3: same trauma,
6: trauma on America in their heart as you've already did. Because we heard first three different possible locations, maybe multiple shooters.
3: With a smile on his face now and a cowboy hat in his hand, Graham waves at passing cars a few blocks from the bowling alley that was targeted first. And he sees how the people in Lewiston are hurting. Some of them stopped to talk to him. He says one of the first people he spoke to was a couple who survived the shooting at the bowling alley.
6: They went on to tell me that they were the first out the exit. And before they left to watch the manager drop. Five feet away, get up, and go down again. And they came here and they're like, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with that we were first to run? So there was a case where I said, what you need to do is talk about it. Your post-traumatic
3: is real. And if you talk about it, it's healthy. And so they talked for about an hour right here in the dark. Graham says he plans to stay in Lewiston for a while, lending an ear or a smile to those who need it.
6: I think it's possible for one person to make a difference. And I think it's possible to provide an instant injection of love, instant injection of hope, an instant injection, like within hours of arriving. People drive by and
3: they're like, that's nice. And now the city intends it to be an annual occasion in honor of the victims.
0: <laughs> Joining us for the G-R-R-S-L-A Show, here's G. Scott. We heard that the PCC store that opened just two years ago in the Rainier Tower downtown is closing down because they can't make any money. So that means downtown is going to be an organic food desert now.
7: Yeah. uh, You still have Whole Foods, which is a mile away uh, Mm -hmm. that is down there. Um, You know, first, let me start off with this. Thank you, PCC, for telling the truth. Right? Because you could have easily got on there and said crime was the reason and we're closing down all of the crime and all that kind of stuff. So I want to give credit. Colleen, to PCC for coming out and saying, like, hey, finances have been a problem. They reported uh, a loss in 2022 of $250,000 loss. It was the first time PCC had had a loss since the 90s. That was still
3: recovery mode from the pandemic, too, though. uh, No, absolutely. No
7: no, no doubt about it. You have people who downtown is still not back to downtown. People Mm -hmm. still aren't coming back to work. You also have the fact that in 2019 in the Rainier Tower, you remember if you guys remember it was uh Amazon that said, "Nah, we're not coming to that building." Mm-hmm. They decided to say no so you don't have them occupying down there. So you you have that going on. And I I don't think that and I think we can all agree how we shop today, especially after the pandemic, is a lot different than it was pre-2020. 100%. So whether it's you maybe not you Dave, me, Colleen, <laughs> not you, Sully, because you, Sully, I already know you going to the store yourself. I yeah, get I'm going it. to Safeway. I was still right after my <laughs> no, workout on Mondays, Get the food <laughs> for the week. No, no doubt about it. But a lot of us are shopping different, right? And also, I'm gonna keep it a buck with y'all. PCC. Hmm. You got to have a little coin in your pocket. You feel me? (laughs) I mean, I'm not not trying to, no, this is no disrespect towards PCC, but if you're somebody that's like, hello, Charles, you know, we should go stop by PCC. That means you're not worried about your bills at the end of the month.
3: You good. If you're getting all your groceries there. Folks like me,
7: (laughs) I'm going you know what I'm saying? To yeah. some, you know, I'm not you're going to clipping, yeah. You're coupon clipping, looking for the deals, yeah. you're getting
3: the gas points. All Absolutely. That stuff.
7: Yeah. So, um, again, shout out to PCC for doing that. But this is also a be- a light into what's going to be happening in the future. We're going to be talking about this more and more and more. A lot of brick and mortars not being able to make it because of our ways that we do things, the ways that we shop today. Now, if you're the Dave Rosses and Sully's of the world and you're still going out there keeping brick and mortars going, Shout out to you. Good for you. But I'm just telling you, these young whippersnappers from Colleen and myself on down, they are different now, y'all.
3: What do you mean different? Though, are you ordering your groceries now? Are you not going to the store? Uh,
7: meat, mm-hmm. produce. Mm-hmm. Yes, I go to the yeah. store. Yeah, right. I no doubt about it. I can't. I ain't vibing having my meat that I didn't see or produce or vegetables that I didn't see.
3: But snack attacks, I order those. So,
7: I like yeah. that. I'm stealing that from you. The snack, <laughs> Right? The snack attached. The toothpaste. Yeah. Right? All yeah. the little essentials. The deodorants and the cat litter and cat food and all the different mm-hmm. things like that that sure. used to make me be at the store. All I'm saying is, is my store grocery list is a lot smaller post-2020 than it used to be. And I think there's a lot of people... That can say that. Mm-hmm. Snack of the Month Club. Snack attack. Do you? Yeah. yeah. Right. Wait, wait, what's he, that?
3: He has a Snack of the Month Club. No,
0: my, my daughter gave me a Snack of the Month Club for, uh, yeah. What and was your recent one? Uh, they come from different countries, but Ooh. it was, you know, very strange uh, little things, but all delicious <laughs> and usually gone. And I've got about well, it. How to
3: keep Dave happy? Did you see, did you see how happy he I got? Know. I know. He, like, he did a <laughs> little shiver. He was so happy.
0: she's <laughs> Scott, with Ursula at nine o'clock. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. Let's talk about young people and social media. Devorah Heitner has a Ph.D. in media studies and has uh, written a new book about how young people interact with social media. It's called Growing Up in Public, and that pretty much is the state of affairs with uh, young people today. And... Uh, I did not have to deal with that when I raised my kids. Colleen's going to have to deal with it with her kids. I guess I have to deal with my grandkids. But I guess the preferred option, that is to just keep your child away from social media, doesn't work, right?
8: Absolutely. Kids are immersed in social media, and even if they prefer not to be on it, their friends are talking about it. It's kind of like how we heard about what whatever was on TV, and maybe you didn't watch The Simpsons or The Cosby Show or whatever, but people were still talking about it. It's still part of the culture. We
3: talk a lot about the negative side effects of social media. We had a guest on just a couple weeks ago talking about, uh, you know, real depressive episodes and suicidal ideation, especially with young girls on social media. We don't often talk about perhaps uh, what what teens and young kids can gain from social media. And uh, one aspect I was discussing with a fellow parent of mine is the fact that kids are are not shy to talk about their gender identities and neurodiversity, things that once made kids feel like loners. Now they can find groups like them.
8: Absolutely. It's one of the biggest findings when I was researching growing up in public is that a lot of these aspects of our identity that we were told to keep quiet about Mm -hmm. or You know, I saw a therapist when I was a teenager and no one even said in the early 90s to me, keep quiet about it, Devorah. I just kind of picked it up from the culture that this wasn't something to share. And even my close friends, I wouldn't say, oh, I've got to bounce. I have therapy. I would say, I've got to go. I have to go to my job or I have to go study. And I love that kids could just say today. I have a therapy appointment and most of their friends probably wouldn't bat an eye. Now, I totally appreciate that some kids might prefer to keep that private. And I think that's great, too. I think we should all have a choice about what we share, about our mental health, about our gender identities, anything like that. It's personal and it's you share what you want to share. But the fact that kids can share is one of the huge ways that they are changing our culture.
3: With all of that so public, though, and knowing that there are still individuals out there who attach a stigma to it, whether you talk about therapy or depression or medication, whatever it may be online, is is there anything we should worry about in the future with employers being able to find that information? Not that it's right that an employer would see that and go, well, I don't know if I want this person working for me, but is that something we need to warn kids about?
8: Well, the good news is, for example, colleges are not doing the kind of deep dive that we might think that they would do about our they're not searching them out on social media and employers what you want to do with employers is make sure that there's things that are relevant and positive for example if you're on github or linkedin and you're sharing things that are relevant to your experience and work you know that post that you made on tumblr when you were 12 is probably not what they're going to find when you're doing a job search when you're 26 if you've been posting more recently so i think it's more important to focus on what's positive that you can share that will help your job search that said, I do think all of us have shared so much personally about ourselves, and in many protected categories, whether it's whether we have children, our ethnicity, you know, our perspectives on the war in the Middle East, and all of these kinds of speech theoretically are protected. But we know people have lost jobs or lost opportunities for jobs. And sometimes you'll never know why someone did or didn't hire you. Mm -hmm. So I think it's fair to say, yes, your, your online footprint can help you, but the recruiters that I interviewed, the young recruiters for growing up in public, where they're actually out there looking at recent grads. They said it's actually worse if you have nothing at all. <laughs> you hmm. know, it's better to be out there on GitHub or LinkedIn. And they, one recruiter specifically told me, look, I went to college, too, and I'm 30. I'm not looking to find out if you ever have a picture of you with a red solo cup and then I'm not going to hire you. <laughs> I'm not out there trying to find out if you ever went to a party. I just want to see what's awesome about you and what you can contribute in our community.
0: There's a difference, I think, though, between sharing and broadcasting. Mm-hmm. I mean, I share stuff with our family thread. I actually I'm probably closer to my siblings now than I was when I lived there because we you know we share stories and anecdotes and pictures of the kids and grandkids. But for some reason, young people don't want to just share with a limited circle of friends. They want to broadcast to everybody and they it seems to me they don't know when to stop.
8: It's interesting. I have actually talked to a lot of young people who have different levels of sharing in different accounts. So maybe on an Instagram account, they'll have a main where they share just occasionally with everyone. And then they'll have what a lot of young people will call it a spam account, where they're actually only connecting with a small group of people. And even group texts are incredibly important to a lot of us because we're sharing with a group that we control. So I would actually say that young people may be thinking more about their privacy and when you see someone kind of sharing something for a small group with everyone it's often an adult who maybe didn't grow up with social media and is less adept at using it (laughs) the kids are thinking very carefully often about who am i sharing this with or Mm -hmm. do i really want to be maintaining a snapchat streak with this person or do i want to share this in my discord which is only my gamer friends or do i want to share this in my instagram you know spam group which is maybe my three best friends from middle school and we have the same shared humor uh, kids are actually very thoughtful about who they're sharing it with sharing with and i think that was one of my big findings because in growing up in public i was so worried about how our kids are growing up i mean i have a 14 year old and i feel like oh will he have privacy what about facial recognition what about all the sharing mm-hmm. and as i interviewed hundreds of teenagers i learned that kids are actually very thoughtful about this yeah that rings true.
3: A couple of times now, my 10 my year old, she'll go, I don't want that picture shared because she knows mm-hmm. I, I share a lot and my accounts are, are very locked up. And you're right. I, I try to be thoughtful about what I share and who I share it with. But they are. They're thinking about their public footprint already, which is an interesting observation a- along that same line. Should we be sharing our kids? And should we ask their permission?
8: Ideally, we're asking their permission once they're old enough to understand that conversation and old enough to ask us questions like, hey, please don't share or, who's on your Facebook or your Instagram. And the reason we want to ask permission is it sets them up to feel safe at home. They shouldn't feel like we're, home is in a safe space where they can be shared in their footy pajamas or, you know, belting out show tunes without their knowledge or consent. And we might forget the ways our peer group overlaps with theirs, like our friends might be the parents of their friends. And therefore, somebody at school might see that post and find it something to tease your child about. Even something you think is innocuous could be not how your fourth grader wants to, you know, roll onto the school bus with their fourth grade street cred. Maybe those footy pajamas don't work (laughs) with their image. So I think it's really important to ask our kids permission because it also models what we want them to do we want them to ask their friends permission Mm -hmm. and we want them to know that it's okay to say please don't share
0: devora heitner is the author of growing up in public devora
6: thank
8: you very much thank you so much if you're up for putting a link to me or the book in the show notes of course i'd love that either devoraheitner.com or just the amazon link to the book
0: Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross.
3: And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930.
0: And if you subscribe, you'll never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.